Welcome everyone to Dead Cat. Tom Dotan here, joined by Katie Benner. Eric is away this week at the great European tax incentive known as Web Summit. So it's another one of those freewheeling, off-the-cuff Katie and Tom episodes. <laughs> Anything can happen. But no, we got structure this week. We could be as, fired. <laughs> that's true. At, at, from any of our jobs, this could be the last time you see Katie and I. <laughs> we got structure this week, though, because as our guest, we have in the room Aki Ito, who is my colleague at Insider. Aki is a features reporter, senior tech correspondent and features reporter. She's doing the deep and assiduous work of examining our very broken, very complex, very troubled psyche of work culture. And she's written a ton of really good stories about it. And as far as Dead Cat is concerned, it's just a topic that we come back to maybe the most frequently on the show. It's the one we explore the most. Because it takes the least amount of expertise to talk about it. That's true. We're all working. <laughs> That's true. You have to read the fewest numbers of articles about it, except for Aki's, because we all work. We all find ourselves hating our jobs at different times and recognizing that other people hate their jobs. Nobody wants to work anymore. That has been like the great realization from the pandemic, even though we all still do it. And Aki has sort of been on the forefront of examining what has been going on in the last few years. And we'll talk about this later in the episode, but she wrote an article about coasting culture that ended up being the inspiration for quiet quitting. And I would say you are directly or indirectly responsible for that whole discourse, that whole cycle where we talked about quiet quitting. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry yeah. in advance. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're not responsible for the term, but we, we can talk about that later. So first of all, Aki, I mean, you already said something, but welcome to Dead Cat. Thank you so much for joining. Yeah, good to be on. Hey, guys. I actually want to talk about just your desire and decision to cover the work culture beat. How long have you been on it at Insider or elsewhere? You know, I think I've been writing about work in some capacity for a really long time because I started out as an economics reporter in Tokyo at Bloomberg you know, and I think work is like a big part of the job market. But, you know, at first I covered it from kind of like a macroeconomics perspective about the job market. And then when I moved to the States in 2012, I was writing a lot of stories about kind of the intersection of technology and the job market, how tech was changing the job market in one way or another. So that involved a lot of stories about work in the late 2010s, maybe around like 2018, I started like a YouTube documentary series about people and jobs that didn't exist maybe like a generation ago. It was called Next Jobs. And so that was probably like the closest I've done on like specific jobs and kind of more workplace issues. And then I came to Insider in 2021. and. Mm -hmm. You know, from the beginning, I started as a workplace reporter. So that's kind of my trajectory. Got it. And when you say jobs that didn't exist a generation ago, but do now, we're talking about social media manager, podcast host. <laughs> like, <laughs> what, what else do you put in that group? Well, I think my favorite episode, we did two seasons of it. My favorite episode took me to Rwanda, which was really cool. And I got to profile this guy who was a drone delivery operator. So he helped these like autonomous drones, you know, fly blood to these really remote hospitals in rural Rwanda. It was kind of saving people's lives that way. Yeah. So those kinds of jobs. Fascinating. Okay. So I would put it in the same category of importance as podcast host. So I, I understand. <laughs> 
So what did you see as you started at Insider and got on this run of doing stories about the way our relationship with work has changed? I mean, what did you sort of see at, let's say, 20, 2021 when you began at Insider and started writing these stories? What was happening? Well, I think, you know, from the beginning of my time at Insider, I did want to write about this changing relationship to work. And mostly because my relationship to work changed a lot over the course of 2020, quite dramatically. And, you know, I wanted to find a way to write about it that wasn't just this like self-help, I don't know, confessional first person essay kind of thing. So I spent like most of 2021 just thinking about it, trying to find a way into it. And finally, in the fall of 2021, I was able to convince my editor to let me write like a big piece about it. And yeah, eventually we published that essay in January of this year. And was that the essay about coasting culture? Uh, That was before coasting culture. This piece was called How America Got Addicted to Work. And Mm. it was kind of like, I know like Erin Griffith has been on the show before and like, you know, like the awesome stuff that she wrote back in, when was it like 2018, 2019 about hustle culture? Right. How that seemed like it was not going to last forever. It wasn't sustainable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. No. Yeah, I feel like, you know, both she and, and Helen Peterson and, and maybe also Derek Thompson at the Atlantic were really early in kind of identifying this like crazy devotion to work, especially, you know, among us, like the millennial generation. So I kind of wanted to take a step back in, in this essay that I wrote that I published in January thinking about kind of like going back to like the history, like looking at like 150 years of American work history and arguing that it didn't really start out this way. You know, we have this image of America as like the Protestant work ethic country. But, you know, people actually very much valued leisure at the beginning of the 1900s. There was this huge push, you know, organized by the unions to give us more leisure time and make us work less. And that continued until about 1980. You know, American work hours continued to decline and decline and decline. For a long time, Americans actually worked a lot less than Europeans did. But something happened around 1980, you know, and look at us today. We work about 400 hours less than Germans do, which is a crazy statistic. Oh, 400 hours more than Germans more, do. More, okay. Every yeah, year. Okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> wow. What was it about the 80s? I'm currently reading Reaganland. The Mm. Rick Perlstein history book, which is about, you know, I mean, he's part of his whole series about the rise of the conservative movement, but that looks specifically at, you know, the rise and and rule of of Ronald Reagan and him being specifically like an appendage of the whole business community and kind of the rise of corporate America having far more direct control over political levers, but also just social issues. I mean, what happened in the 80s that you saw in your reporting that made for this dramatic shift towards us being work-obsessed drones? I think a big part was, you know, definitely Reagan. So, you know, on the one hand, the first thing was that the returns to overworking got a lot greater because, you know, rich people weren't paying as much in taxes. And so before, like, the government would have taken everything anyway, so it wasn't worth, you know, working crazy hours. But suddenly now it was worth it for people who were earning high wages. So that was one thing. Another thing was that, you know, work became a lot more precarious, even for white-collar professionals. So before, you could really assume that you would have this, like, lifetime job security as long as you were at, like, you know, a mid-sized company. But you didn't have that guarantee anymore with globalization and the rise of M&A. 
And so as a result, you know, I think a lot of Americans felt compelled to overwork as a way to make themselves Mm -hmm. indispensable. So I think those economic forces were really big. I'm very curious about when you saw this idea of work and meaning start to emerge, where work should be meaningful, where it should be our passion, where it should in so many ways replace some of the leisure activities that you had mentioned earlier, that things like unions were trying to carve out you know, carve out the time and space for for workers. Like, when did our jobs become meaningful? Yeah, I mean, it definitely isn't the way that Americans talked about work even back in the 50s or the 60s. I think it really did start to emerge as a result, as almost like kind of like a rationalization for working so hard. It was like we worked so hard and as a result, we you know, had to find like a reason why we were doing this that made it seem more noble than it actually was. It's like a self-justification, right? It's like at the end of the day, if I've missed spending time with my family and missed spending, you know, the personal growth that I might be able to achieve through leisure activity or other kinds of, you know, more self-oriented activities, you're like, well, I, I must be doing it for a reason. Otherwise, I should be really depressed right now. Yeah. I think the decline in like, Community leisure is also a big part in this, too. You know, we used to have all these civic organizations and places to congregate as a group. You know, we had religion, organized religion. All of that has disintegrated over the years. And so our main form of leisure today is Netflix, right? You know, you're just watching TV, maybe on a phone, you know, all alone. And there's nothing really rewarding about that. So yeah, you have all these studies that actually ping people at random times of the day. Like, are you happy right now? Are you not? How are you feeling? And they find that when people are working, they actually report higher scores of well-being than when people are at home, which is ironic because you would think that it would be the other way around. But yeah, work is the more kind of communal you know, challenging thing that we do in our lives today. And leisure is just, you know, sitting on our couch watching TV, which isn't rewarding. So yeah, I think like that leisure picture plays like a big role in this too. It's interesting too, because, you know, these researchers are saying, are you feeling basically contentment or fulfillment? Because I think those things are a little bit different from happiness, especially in like Mm -hmm. the American definition of happiness, which is so particular. (laughs) I think that if you asked, you know, somebody from France or somebody from China, like if happiness is a goal, they would look at you like you have five heads. But um, <laughs> but, um, Well, there's also like such a connection between, well, if you've worked very hard, you're allowed to take more expansive and expensive vacations. And so well, you so might that's feel- what I'm getting at. Like, I'm, there's this quote, and I'm going to butcher it a little bit, but I was rereading Goodbye to All That. And Joan Didion is writing an essay about the wealthy people of Newport, Rhode Island. And she states flatly, Happiness is a consumption ethic. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that happened during the 80s was we became increasingly a consumer culture. I mean, it was already starting to happen in the post-war period, of course. Listen, I've seen Mad Men too. But I think that in the 80s, you saw that become exceedingly supercharged, the idea of consumerism, like beyond an embrace of it, the idea that that's who we are as people. The term itself, consumerism, was developed in the 60s and 70s. Like it's all a result of like this post-war America, you know, economic. Right. We all have toasters. We all have washers and dryers. You know, sort of like we can live this amazing life as Americans specifically. It was also like um, there's something very patriotic about it. And so I think that she's kind of seeing into the future in some ways, this idea that we would 
create an entire ethic around consumption. And I wonder how that has changed how we see work and how we see satisfaction. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Like, you know, the more we consume, the more money we need. And in order to get that money, we have to work harder. So, uh, yeah, I think there's definitely a vicious cycle going on there. And if you look, you know, at the trends of different industries as they've risen and fallen, both in value, but also prominence in like our culture, it's interesting to see tech fit into all of this. Because if you look at the 80s and when finance and Wall Street were the most desired jobs in America, these were like the captains of industry. There was also like very much a hustle culture. These people were working at all hours and it was, you know, part of being a successful executive in the finance world was the fact that you are dedicated to your job, you have no family life, all of that. And that became very unattractive at a certain point. You saw a lot of people in the industry either getting burnt out or just disillusioned. And then tech is sort of there. I mean, in a way that we consider it tech in, in kind of the Facebook era, you know, web 2.0 period, where these companies were all very mission driven, that they began talking about, you know, Google's don't be evil or whatever Steve Jobs applied to Apple and why it was such an important company. And they would kind of beat that into the head of their employees that you were a good person because you worked for this company. And so you could kind of, we talk about this so much on the show, but like subsume your personal mission and personal identity into that of the companies. I mean, what's your take on that? Like, how did you sort of see tech specifically fit into addiction to work and people's self-definition being connected to the place that they work? I think tech really took the hustle culture that already existed at that time to the extreme. And I feel like I really felt it myself. I got sucked into it myself because I moved to San Francisco from Tokyo in 2012. So this was the, I think it was like the year that Facebook went public. And, you know, I think in the 2010s, there was this like real sense that, you know, tech was not only extremely lucrative, you know, but that it was really altruistic too. And everybody around me was not only earning very nice salaries, but also changing the world. And, you know, you didn't really talk about your salary because, you know, you pretended that changing the world was the more important thing that you were doing. Do you think people still believe that at companies and people who are employees? Do you think that's something that they still think about or still strive for? I don't know. I think a lot of that bubble has popped. I think you know, not just because of the pandemic, which made a lot of people reevaluate their relationship to work, but also just because of the changing tenor of, you know, news coverage of tech companies, right? Now we we think of tech companies as, <laughs> you know, mostly evil, uh, but we didn't. Or just like any other company. Like, right. I mean, sure, e- sure. Which is even more just, concerning. It's not even that it's evil, because that would be interesting. It's that it's boring. Yeah, it's just like, it's just like <laughs> Starbucks or Walmart. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. As fundamentally, you know, profit-seeking corporations. And that's not really how we saw tech companies, I think, back in the 2010s. Like, I think back then no. we, we saw Facebook as, you know, the company that was you know, connecting the world and, you know, Google as a company that was organizing the world and the information of the world. And yeah, you know, I don't, I don't, I would venture, I guess, that most tech employees don't really, you know, kind of have that illusion anymore. 
It would be strange if they did, I feel. You know, I'm sure th- there are some that I believe do, but they would come off as even more Kool-Aid drinking, you know, dead-eyed psychopaths if they said it now than they may have 10 years sure. ago. Well, even when Mark Zuckerberg has rhetorically just sort of given up on all that and been like, we're here to make some money in the metaverse. We're not going to be hitting any safeguards or really give a shit at all about how people feel or what happens to them there. I mean, right. like, oh, okay, it feels very blunt. Which is, I think, partly why the metaverse as a concept is so unappealing to people, because you're not really promising a better world, a more interesting environment in which you can interact with your coworkers or, or your friends, you're basically like helping him create a new platform that he can monetize and be first in yeah. so that, the, you know, the company can stave off the rise of copycats and TikToks and anything that may have, you know, pulled away from their dominance. But, yeah, you're just getting a more pixelated version of the current world. Right, that, that he can make better, you know, more money on it. He can build industry on top of. But anyway, let's zoom in a bit on the pandemic specifically, because like you said, you started covering this in 2021. And so we're in this kind of nether region where we've been working remotely for, you know, a year or so. Our connection to our jobs and a relationship to our jobs is very different because we're all at home. I mean, what did you see developing as time went on and we settled into our remote work lifestyle and began maybe reassessing the way that we work and our relationship to our companies? Yeah, I think there are a couple of threads there. I think probably the most important thing is that because we were no longer going into the office, which seemed like such an important, like such a central pillar of the way we live our lives, that put everything else up for grabs too. And I think that included our relationship to work, how we think about our jobs. I also think that, you know, in a remote environment, like your relationships with your coworkers aren't as important. So people started to realize that I think like, you know, they were too dependent on work for their social lives, that they wanted to build more relationships outside of their jobs, especially if they were going to stay remote. And then I think just kind of the humongous disruptions of the pandemic and the tragedy of it, too, made people do a lot of kind of deeper, you know, more philosophical thinking, gave them some time to think about whether they were living their lives in a way that fulfilled them. And if they weren't, how they wanted to live it a little bit differently. And how did coasting culture, which was sort of your next big you know, insight on the way that we work. How did that fit into things? So, I mean, does it does it flow directly from this period where we've said, yes, we've witnessed this giant tragedy and hundreds of thousands, now a million people that have died because of this disease. Our relationship with our coworkers is now severely limited because we don't see them in person. We don't see our bosses in person. You know, we don't have the commute aspect that give us routine. Did that sort of lead in towards a disillusionment with work and then ultimately people saying, maybe I shouldn't be working that hard in the first place and I can find other meaning in my life? Yeah. And is there a way you could have written this more of a how-to manual? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's funny you say this because like, you know, I was interested in this topic because I underwent this, you know, kind of reevaluation myself. And I wanted to figure out for the coasting culture story, my initial kind of impetus for writing that story was I just wanted to talk to people who had figured out a new way forward that wasn't hustle culture because I was trying to figure that out myself. So yeah, I just try to find people who were working a lot less than they used to be and trying to see if, you know, they were able to be successful with that, you know, to not only keep their jobs, but also be happy with that decision to work less. As you talk to these people that made that decision, what was the rationale? 
I think that in the pandemic, they decided, they made the realization that they had devoted too much of their lives to work and they wanted to make work less central in their lives so they could make room and time for things outside of their lives, whether it was, you know, their family, their spouse, their friends, community, civic activities. Were they happier, though? I mean, it's one thing to make the decision and rebalance the things that you're involved with. But did you find that these people asking for, you know, anyone out there who might have made this decision or wants to, like the people that, you know, pushed things more in that direction, are they seeing the benefits that they thought they were going to? I think the people I spoke to for that story were a lot happier. They found more time to do the things that they found they enjoy a lot more than work. But, you know, I think it's an astute question that you asked because it does come in like kind of two steps, right? The first step is to work less so you have more time to do everything else. But the second step is actually to find those other things that you find actually fulfilling because, you know, if you're using that extra time in your day to, you know, watch more Netflix, for example, you know, that's probably not going to be rewarding for most people. And, you know, that might actually lower your well-being as a result. I think that's the part that I'm still trying to figure out too, you know, to try to fill my newly created time with things that actually do bring me more fulfillment than just work itself. Right. Because, uh, you know, if it's about building community or finding meaning outside of work, that takes work as it well. Does, like, totally. It's not like these things, it's not like, it's like if you create a vacuum by removing the thing that had been there and the expectation is like all the good stuff will just flow into it. And it doesn't just track like it's, it, you know, the idea of meeting people that you live around, going out to a art museum or whatever the hell would, would find meaning for you. Like those are all things that would require work. You got to get off your ass and do it. And, and it's not something that, you know, will just naturally fill in. So I imagine that there are people out there that just sort of like assumed that, you know, meaning and goodness would just, enter their lives because they removed something that had been problematic beforehand and probably found very quickly that it just didn't happen like that. And Netflix is literally just there, right? You can yeah. just go from, you know, the dining room table that you're working at 10 steps over to the living room and suddenly you found yourself filling your time with that. Yeah. I mean, work is just there too. I think that's what makes it so difficult. You know, usually if you put in more time and more effort, then you do get rewarded for it as a result, whether that's you know, professional recognition from your peers, or that's actually a higher salary. Whereas, you know, pursuing these things outside of work, yeah, it comes in fits and starts. It's a lot of experimentation and a lot of things that don't end up being fun. So I think it's less of a sure bet in that way. And I think that makes it hard for people too. I'll say that like one thing that I've actually noticed now that I'm working fully remotely now, and I used to, back when I was at Bloomberg, I went into the office every single day. I found that like working remotely has helped me kind of like maintain energy even at the end of the day to do something else. And like, I'm pretty introverted, I think. So like, you know, back when I was going into the office every day, by the time I came home by like seven o'clock, like all I wanted to do was, you know, not talk to anyone. Maybe, I don't know, maybe I would talk to my wife at the time or something, but like, you know, mostly like I didn't feel up to like hanging out with my friends because I was so exhausted. And by the time Friday night rolled around, like all I wanted to do was watch TV because I was so exhausted. And, you know, Saturday I would spend like just the day recovering and maybe Sunday I would feel social enough to do something. But now, like, I actually, you know, spend a lot of my evenings hanging out with people, you know. I took up pickleball, like, everybody else in Okay, this all right. 
All right, well, see, this, this is what over. happens. This is what happens. <laughs> Damn it. See? I told you, you have to be active in pursuing your interests, not becoming a menace. Yeah. Well, I hope it's been everything you you, you were expecting. <laughs> you, but you, but you, interestingly, you, too, you're given the opportunity to choose with whom you're going to spend those those hours of uh, your time where you're actually with other people, and that choice is not something we've had for a long time. Yeah. Right. There's also, I think, you know, work itself, once you've kind of figured it out, not that it's ever easy. And I can say this, you know, as, as journalists, it's it's a different, difficult challenge every day. And you find new say, ways. All of- we do is pick up the phone, write things down, pick up the phone, write things down. It is literally the same thing every second of okay, the day. Okay. It is actually the but- same thing. But we, we find new ways of that being said- rejected, though. Yes. Yeah. I feel but like that, that can be... Is- <laughs> yeah, there's so many shades of finding yourself dispirited and, and rejected by by doing what we do. Uh, My favorite is, oh yeah, um, I'd love to talk to you. I'll call you right back. Right, <laughs> never, uh, never again. Right. But at the same time, I was I was brought that up only to, to say that the job remains interesting because the questions are always different mm-hmm. because right. they're always yeah. And the people are, are different and, and it's you're dealing with, you know, people's personalities and individual emotions and motivations and things like that. <laughs> but um, I think in general, once you get fairly good at your job, you kind of know the actions that you need to take more or less to succeed in it. And there's a success and expertise with repetition. Whereas when you're talking about developing your personal life or building up hobbies, I think there's a lot more rejection and instability almost or lack of certainty with those things that can be hard in its own way, right? I mean, you've got to organize with other people to meet up. You got to find a thing to do. You know, you may not have a good time. You may like, you know, invite everyone out to go to, I don't know, a concert and actually it sucked. And you're like, wow, if I had just stayed home and just watch Netflix, that might have been more fulfilling for me. At least I could have counted. So if we're all corralled together in the workplace, nobody's putting themselves out there and saying, let's all get together. We're just trapped there. So we make the best of it. And sometimes it's fun. (laughs) This is a very dark view of the world. (laughs) You know, researchers actually, psychologists like make the differentiation of hard leisure and easy leisure. That might not actually be like the actual terms that they use, but hard leisure is, you know, stuff that's actually challenging that requires you to build out your skill, you know, that takes a little bit of failure. And then easy leisure is just, you know, I don't know, like taking up a hobby that you don't take very seriously or maybe just going out to drinks with a friend or something like that. And they say mm-hmm. that you... Where does pickleball <laughs> fall within those two? So, so I think it would depend on the person, but I'm very competitive. So for me, pickleball would... would you go hard. Yeah, it's hard it becomes hard leisure because I get really into it, you know, and I practice and I watch the YouTube videos to like perfect my serves. And um, uh, yeah, so I think for me, it would be hard leisure, but I'm sure for a lot of people, it would be easy leisure. Yeah, there is like a self-consciousness around doing things with other people that we forget about, especially if you so much of your social life was the workplace. It was served up to you. And I think that that's something that we're trying to struggle with, too, even as we reenter the world um, may or may not be going back to the office. It's like, how do we have the social interactions we've been craving when there are all these risks, rejection, people not having the time, people unsure whether or not they're still close to the people they thought they were close with. And then, of course, the idea that we could still get COVID. <laughs> <laughs> sort of yeah. like hanging out in the right, background. Right, right. Like, yeah. Eh, you know. Right. Yeah. How much did they, did they matter in the first place? What about quiet quitting as a term? Because my understanding of the progression here is that you write this piece about coasting culture. It makes its way through 
the world of people who you know read insider stories, but also just really pay attention to workplace and work culture trends. And then it becomes a TikTok trend that some social psychologist or whatever reads the piece and says, oh, I've been noticing this a lot too. And I categorize this behavior as quiet quitting. And then that becomes a meme and everyone's talking about it on Twitter for a couple of weeks, maybe giving you credit for it, maybe not. Explain to me the trajectory from that piece that you wrote on coasting culture and this term that we all now know. Yeah. So what happened was after my story published, there was a career coach on TikTok and YouTube who... Talk about a job that didn't exist a generation ago. <laughs> but anyway, go, go on. Yeah. So he, he riffed on my story and I actually talked to him about this a few weeks ago. He said he didn't like spend that much time like thinking about the name, but he just kind of spontaneously came up with it by combining a few of the words that were in my headline, I guess. And he called it quiet quitting. And then I guess a bunch of TikTokers kind of jumped on that and made it even more viral. And it was kind of building in virality on TikTok for a few months. And then it broke out into the mainstream in late August or so when outlets like the Wall Street Journal started talking about it. So I did not come up with the term. Yeah, I called it coasting culture. And editorializing around it too, right? There were like people that were very upset Oh, at yeah. The term. They found it to be deeply troubling. Well, the, you know, and I think this says something about the Internet. There were multiple stages, I think, of this and like the outrage cycle at first. You know, people were just like, wow, look at this thing that like young people are talking about on TikTok. And then like all the executives came in. They're like, what the fuck is this? Like, you know, young people are so lazy. Like, don't do this. No this one's is quite atrocious. quitting on my job. <laughs> this is what's wrong about the world today. And then from there, all the young people came out and they were like, why are we even calling this quiet quitting when it's just doing your job? Right. What's the quitting yeah, th aspect that's, of that's it? So yeah. like, right. If you're doing the bare minimum, that is actually the job. That is actually the job description. Exactly. You're fulfilling yeah. the job description. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So there's, right. which is sort of like reclaiming that trend you identified as starting in the 80s of people being incentivized to what we thought then of overwork. Right. right. And to recognize it as such. I mean, I remember in the 80s, there were like Time Magazine cover stories about workaholism <laughs> mm -hmm. and like whether or not this is going to destroy America. And you could argue maybe it has, but, but you know, but it was it was definitely seen as an aberration right. then. And then by the time we got to your quiet quitting story, it was people recognizing that actually perhaps it is an aberration. Right. Yeah, I feel like the, uh, I hate this word, but I feel like the discourse would have been a little bit better <laughs> had they gone with the term coasting culture rather than quiet Oh, I thought you were going to say had Twitter not existed. Oh, shoot. Oh, I was well, totally well, like... I, I don't know if you've been paying attention else. to the discourse recently, uh, but actually it's as good as it's ever been. Uh, free speech is back. It's uh, Apparently it's bad for business, but free speech is back. We've saved it. Actually, we can talk about Elon a little bit here because I, I, I do... Uh, we'll see. We'll see. If we're having a good time, then no, we don't. But um, uh, I'm having a good time, so let's not. But, um, you know... Uh, Coasting culture, to me, and even that in its of itself, I think probably implies a little bit of a boss-centric attitude, which is that you're just sort of coasting along, you're taking okay. up time, you're not really helping the company. And that in of itself, you, you know, like it's not a positive thing. I doubt you spent that much time thinking whether or not this had, you know, employer or employee facing. No, I did. Uh, I did. Yeah, oh, you did? I, okay, I, I did spend a lot of time and I didn't like the term coasting culture either. I just couldn't come up with anything mm -hmm. better. And I, I think that does go to show kind of the limitations of our language now. Like, because I wrote in my story, like, these people aren't lazy or 
you know, unambitious or shiftless. They're just done letting their employers squeeze free labor out of them. So it was a very like kind of Mm pro-worker story, you know, but there's no like actual word in the English language that could make that seem like a good thing because we're so steeped in hustle culture now, I think. I think the thing I like about quiet quitting, even though I do agree that it's a flawed term in its own way, is, you know, it's essentially about quitting a philosophy. And I like kind of that rejection of the way that we used to live our lives. And I know there's something really, you know, kind of refreshing and a little bit badass about it, I think. Yeah. I mean, when you explain it like that, it makes a lot of sense. But I was a little bit late, like a half step late to the trend. And so when the term itself was making its way around whatever, Twitter, to me, when, when I first saw it, I assumed it meant people that were leaving their jobs and weren't their bosses, <laughs> like, like an Irish goodbye, but for, for uh-huh. quitting, right? They just stopped showing up and like... They just, their bosses found out after paying them for several months. They're like, oh shit. That would be an amazing story. Like, Tom hasn't been here. Why have we been sending him that checks? That would be amazing. Real and it's quitting. like, by the way, if that's a trend, yeah, if that's a trend, that's fucking awesome. Like, that's a real power, you know, power to the people move. But, you know, I think I had the reaction that a lot of whatever millennials of my generation did, which was that like, oh, that's not quitting at all. You're just mm-hmm. still working. You're just not working as hard. And I think that begat, you know, maybe some of the backlash to the backlash or whatever. But I thought that the boss's reaction to it was very interesting because I saw these op-eds. I think Peggy Noonan or someone at the Wall Street Journal wrote one of her kind of, whatever, kind of lazy pieces on it. And, and there were other kind of... And she, it was funny from her because I don't believe she's ever employed people. Like she's never really been a boss. So she was just kind of rejecting... I saw it as her writing that op-ed as like a as sort of a defense of the Reaganist culture that she did help kind of lead when she was, you know, Reagan's speechwriter, which was like, no, 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 your work is extremely important. You need to be someone who finds meaning in the same way that Jim, I think she was like referencing the office and how like, you know, if it weren't, if it weren't for work culture, Jim never would have found Pam. <laughs> it's like, lady, these people aren't for real. real. Like, yeah, it her. was like, think of all the office sitcoms that we've enjoyed through our lives that never would have come to fruition had we not had a workplace-centric society. Oh, which, if not for email, you yeah. know, the couple and you've got mail never would have found one another. Across think about those. that. Yeah, and Meg so. Ryan and Tom Hanks would have never connected had they not only communicated through, you know, disintermediate, anyway. But, which but, is why but, we should bring back AOL. <laughs> right. Well, I think my, my dad still has an AOL email address. So, you know, <laughs> okay. that's the, the boomers will, will be there for it. Oh, let's talk about the boomers for a bit. So, so <sighs> if it is a generational aspect to it, I mean, you were really writing about millennials and maybe some Gen Z people that were kind of the leads of this trend. I mean, for the boss generation, you know, the boomers and maybe some Gen Xers, their reaction was largely you know, rejecting it because they saw it as as laziness? I think, you know, when I wrote it, I, I thought it applied to all generations, but particularly for millennials, because I think, you know, we spent a long time, we spent like many years in the workplace initially, just so grateful to have jobs at all, I think. And and finding fulfillment and, there. And per- thinking that we were finding fulfillment there. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> pulling, pulling oneself into thinking it was fulfilling. Yes, right. yes. That sounds more accurate. Yeah. But, but there's something that, like, really interesting that I think happened, like, you know, kind of in the later stages of the pandemic with the really hot job market that made us realize, like, actually, like, we don't have to be so grateful to have jobs at all. Like, we can have any job we want and we can demand raises. And I think part of that 
was also, you know, we can demand to have an actual work-life balance. I think back in like the early 2010s, a lot of commentators actually thought that we millennials would be like the work-life balance generation. And that turned out to be totally untrue because, you know, of the economic climate that we started working in. Things were so bad that we actually didn't demand a work-life balance at all. If anything, we were just, you know, happy to work ourselves to death. And I think that's like one of the ways in which Gen Z is different now. I think younger workers, because they're coming into the workplace in this time when they have like a tremendous amount of bargaining power just because of the way the job market is right now, you know, they're demanding things that I think for me as a 35 year old feels a little like, oh, like, are you sure you want to <laughs> be that vocal? Like, are, <laughs> is it okay to ask that from your boss? But I know that a lot of my younger colleagues have no qualms about that because, you know, they have a fundamentally different view of, you know, their relationship to their employer. I think that's very much mm. shaped by, you know, kind of their early years in the workplace. And I wonder if that's one of the things that sort of like psychologically paved the way for an embrace of unions. Like, it doesn't feel like unions, no matter what was going on in the labor market, were really going to find a foothold in corporate America at a time when you had a generation grateful to have work, <laughs> that it kind of convinced itself that it was finding fulfillment through this work and that it was making meaning and changing the world in positive ways. It's like really hard to have a union which implicitly says there needs to be a wall between the employee and the employer and that this is, you know, a potentially very unbalanced relationship. And so you need to band together in order to sort of even out the scales. But if you now have a generation that looks at work with more skepticism and that is not willing to do things that <laughs> a generation before would have said were just opportunities to advance and learn and grow, this generation sees as potentially exploitative. Suddenly, it does feel like you have the psychological room for unions, even when the jobs are paying well. Yeah. Right. Well, and we have sort of two parallel tracks going on right now within, you know, blue collar work and, you know, the email jobs. Because, you know, you're <laughs> seeing this trend of people at service and retail unionizing, right? All the Starbucks that have formed unions, the Trader Joe's that have formed unions, some Apple stores, you, you're starting mm -hmm. to see like union-like movement happening. So that's going on at the blue collar level. And then within, you know, the white collar level, whatever you want to call these jobs. Service economy versus white collar, sure. Yeah, like, like office jobs. You're having various trends in which people are sort of wrestling with how protected they are, the relationship they want to have with their jobs, whether it's the quiet quitting phenomenon, whether it's people. I mean, you're starting to see, you know, like newsrooms, obviously, there's a push to have more unions there. The Pittsburgh Post-Gazette is on strike. As right. Speak. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then there's, you know, like the Google union uh, was a thing that didn't really get all that far. But, you know, that was the kind of similar sort of trend, people trying to figure out how they can work among their fellow co-workers to redirect or find more meaning in the jobs that they have or more control in the jobs that they have. I mean, what do you think about that? Like, are these the same things? Is it, is it the same phenomenon, the unionization happening at the blue collar level and the sort of dissatisfaction or unrest happening at the white collar jobs? I think there are some similar threads, you know, both for, you know, blue collar workers and for white collar workers. It's been a very, very good job market. And I think that that gives workers, you know, on both ends of the income scale, kind of more, I think both like, you know, more confidence, I think, to demand what they want. 
you know, not have to worry so much about their job security when it comes to organizing. But I I think for like blue collar workers, a big part too was also the physical dangers that they had to put themselves in during the pandemic, especially when, you know, Mm -hmm. PPE supplies were so low. Of course, we as, you know, kind of professional office workers, you know, didn't encounter that. We were very safe. So there's probably a little bit of a difference as well. But yeah, I I think I'll be really curious to see like where this like momentum for unionization goes in the next few years. Like, I mean, with the economy turning, I don't know if it's the momentum's going to continue. I hope it will. But yeah, we'll, Mm -hmm. we'll see. And even as the economy turns, you know, and I think that the last time this happened in 2008, One of the things that we have today that's in a more exacerbated state than it was in 2008 and 2009 is this ginormous, visible, extreme wealth gap. And so, you know, in 2008 and 2009, as the economy went down the toilet, we saw Wall Street take a hit and executives be raked over the coals. But then we did not see accountability or a loss of wealth. In fact, most of the CEOs involved became wealthier than they'd ever been in the subsequent years. So now as it's happening, you know, 15 years later, you have a public remembering how little the wealthiest Americans, in that case, most responsible for the downturn, had to pay in any way. And now we're seeing this huge wealth gap. So when we talk about a downturn, it feels like an extremely uneven downturn. And it doesn't even seem realistic to call it a downturn for so much of corporate America or especially investors or people who have access to huge amounts of private capital. And so even though the economy could get worse, I do wonder if people will continue to try to find ways to address the fact that this might not feel fair to them and if unions will continue to be one of right, those outlets. Right, I mean, I think like right now, though, the blue collar job market is still very, very good. If anything, you know, the layoffs are very concentrated in the tech sector right now where workers are paid mm-hmm. very well. So, yeah, it, it does feel like a, a different dynamic than your typical recession, you know, and I wonder how that's going to end up playing out over the next year. Well, if you look at the rationale that a lot of companies had for layoffs, Stripe had layoffs yesterday, Shopify had layoffs yesterday, Amazon has has cut a lot of its more like extraneous, what they argue is like extraneous workforce um, than Twitter. But Twitter is obviously a unique Mm. circumstance. I think Twitter is a special special case. Their argument is largely that they overshot their growth (laughs) expectations, that they sort of bought the bullshit that during the pandemic, as things were really taking off and equities were skyrocketing, good times were never going to end. And they should hire to meet that demand. And from Amazon to all the other companies that I just mentioned, the cold grips of reality that what they were riding on was actually completely unrealistic set in. And they had to you know, restructure their guidance and their workforce to, to meet where the, the business actually is. But like you're saying, it doesn't feel like the same sort of recession type. Our business just fell off a cliff. We need to lay a ton of people off so that we can save all of our costs. It mostly just seemed like a huge projection issue, uh, which isn't a problem. I mean, these are still people being laid off, but the kind of, you know, challenging workforce unemployment skyrocketing that we would see in a a typical recession, I don't quite see it there yet. And so I don't know what that's going to mean in terms of, you know, the culture that's been built up over the last couple of years. Yeah, I mean, I think for now, most economists think that this is going to be a pretty mild recession, at least for us here in the U.S., Unemployment is going to go up, but probably not by a whole lot. So 
as long as it stays that way, I think it'll be, you know, relatively painless compared to a lot of the other recessions that we've had in the past. But I don't know. We'll see. It's difficult to prognosticate these things. And if it were easy, I'd be very rich. (laughs) In terms of the stuff that you've written about, I mean, what do you see, you know, having an impact on you know, quiet quitting. I mean, you, you wrote a piece like like a week or so ago where you talked about how layoffs will or will not change a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about it. Like, like in my head, I sort of saw it, thing, you know, everything going from like quiet quitting to like quiet shitting your pants that you could be laid <laughs> off. Um, that is not going to, that's not, that is not going to take no? off. No? <laughs> Sorry. You don't want to get that one trending? That, that one's not going to go TikTok viral. We've now entered the quiet shitting period. Um... <laughs> Good but, try, though. Okay. I, you know what? Let's see. Let's see. I'm, I'm going to take a month <laughs> off of Twitter, by the way. So if I come back and this thing is huge, I'll be really disappointed I wasn't there to watch Oh, it. are you guys going to pay money for your blue check? Is that something you're going to do? I don't know. Uh, $8 is the current it's, price. Yeah, and I feel like, I don't know. I'd rather have my Netflix. I don't know. Well, I, I would say like a dollar is about the most I would pay for uh, my check. That's about as much as it's worth to me. I'd pay a dollar. Yeah, I'd do a dollar. If my boss is paid, then... I'd be happy for that. But I don't think I would pay myself. Oh. Yeah, no, it's so funny. Like, would the New York Times pay for us all to have blue checks? Well, that's a huge expense. That seems insane, but... Especially wow. with all the reporters. I mean, that's like a thousand-something reporters, you know, every month. Yeah, and you've got 8, like... Ugh. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I mean... <laughs> I'd love know. to see, like, the New York Times About have a hundred bucks a that. month. $100,000 a year just on blue checks. Yeah, the New York Times took tough. a one-time $8 million write-down in order to ensure <laughs> that reporters remain verified on Twitter. But also not just reporters, the New York Times itself. Like, we have all these accounts, like the Times right. account, the Times business account, the Times tech team account. Yeah. They all have blue checks. So it would be... And, like, do you not give the White House a blue check? Like, do we have to use taxpayer dollars wow. <laughs> to make sure that, like, the White House account is still verified? And I mean, if not, that's a government contract like, if you think about it, right? <laughs> won't you there know, be it's 15 like, other fuck? Like, I would immediately start a Twitter account that was, like, out White House, but spelled, like, W-H-I-T-H-O-U-S-E. Just because. I mean, like, no, I wouldn't. It's I as verified as the actual White House I, account. I wouldn't do that to all my bosses. No, but, I mean, who... You can see where that would be fascinating if the official White House account were no more, were not held apart in terms of its veracity from like all of the White House copy count accounts that will spring up. You describe that as interesting. I describe that as free speech. (laughs) Uh, and, 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 and the bastion of free speech that we're trying to defend on this. Yeah, uh, let it, let it, let it, let it ride. Just (laughs) I'm up for whatever. I'm I'm done criticizing any strategic decision. I think they should just go ham. And, and can everything a, should be on the table. Can you get a blue check? You, you know, so presumably a candidate can have a blue check. But what about a person who just had a very similar name to the candidate? Can they pay for the blue check? And then you've got like, you know. Yeah, probably. Donald Trump. But then you, you have like Donald Trump or you have. Right. The real <laughs> Donald Trump. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, Joe I Biden. Th- <laughs> I think the way the checks are supposed to work now is that it's the people that currently have checks that if they don't pay, they'll have it rescinded. But I don't know if new, like any, is it that anybody that would sign up for the subscription tier of Twitter would just get a check? Yeah, because the way Elon's been talking about is like democratizing the check, right? So presumably that does mean that anyone can apply for it. By making it into a financial hierarchy, (laughs) yeah. 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 
So, I mean, like, if my name were Joe Biden and I were just another Joe Biden, I'd buy a check so fast. Uh-huh. And, or if I, if my name were Don Trump, I'd be like, ah, oh, this is so rad. Yeah. Now's my moment. Especially Now's if Donald my moment Trump to set some policy. Yeah, doesn't doesn't come back to the platform because he's sticking it out with Truth Social. So there's only one real Donald Trump or Don Trump, Don K. Trump. <laughs> Who's, what if it were Don D A W N Trump? I think that would actually work almost as well. If you had I'm the right photo, I'm surprised that's not like a top baby name, you know, for <laughs> conservative female babies. We don't know. know that it's not. It's going to take a little while for that data to. Yeah, be we'll look back at the spike in Don's D A W N's last popular in like the 70s or something. Uh, so, in our last section here, I did want to ask a bit about the most recent story that you wrote because there was a really interesting paragraph that I want to read here, and it kind of maybe sets the stage for where we are right now in the job market and our work-life relationship. So, I'm going to read from your story here. Even as the great resignation turns into plain old resignation, I don't think hustle culture is ever coming back. America's addiction to overwork wasn't just about the hours we put into our jobs. It was about looking to our careers to provide our lives with meaning and define our identities. Freed temporarily from the shackles of hustle culture, millions of Americans have glimpsed a new way of ordering their lives. And here's a quote here. I don't think that people can forget this reevaluation that they've done. Jessica Kriegel, chief scientist of workplace culture at the consultancy Culture Partners, told me. Another job I'm pretty sure didn't exist a generation ago. But anyway, we're never going back to pre-pandemic norms. So, I mean... It's all fairly clear in that paragraph, but that's sort of where you think it stands, even if we do enter some sort of a mild recession, the kind of great reset that I think a lot of bosses were hoping for after the pandemic. And you've seen this with like Zuckerberg, you know, admonishing his employees for asking about meta days and all this other shit that I know like bosses want to get out of here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Co- coasters, the quiet coasters, actually. You know, I, I, there's clearly a desire among the employer class to reverse the trend that you've been writing about. But you don't think it's possible. You don't think our brains will suddenly have to be reformatted back to hustle culture in a way that really benefited a lot of bosses over the yeah, last Yeah, I don't years. think so. And, I, you know, this is interesting to me because this story came out of a follow-up conversation that I had with this guy who I pseudonymously called Justin in my original Coasting Culture story and in this most recent follow-up story. He's a recruiter. You know, he had scaled his hours down to, you know, as little as maybe 30 hours a week before he used to work like you know, 60, 70 hour weeks. And he was really happy with that for a while. But in the late summer, he started to notice that things were shifting. And the job market for recruiters is genuinely bad now because fewer people are hiring now. So a lot of some of his colleagues were getting laid off. His performance reviews were getting harder. And so he's now back to working about 50 hours a week now kind of lost a little bit of his swagger, you know? And at first I was kind of disappointed. And I was like, oh, like, you know, what? Justin, yeah, I was like, oh, guy. what a short-lived trend. <laughs> but he was saying that, you know, even for him, it... You see the pickleball racket just <laughs> collecting dust in his closet. As those hours have which gone is, straight Which to is the boss. luckily more affordable than the Peloton collecting dust. But yeah, yeah that's true. 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 <laughs> Peloton was hustle culture though, right? Those were like the freaks. Those are the people yeah, that had that to was, work. That was hard leisure. <laughs> right, for sure. Plus, like, that was like, I got to work out at and home lonely. so I can stay intense. <laughs> like, just me. Yeah. Yeah, so he's back to working 50 hours a week. So he's upped his hours. But he said that he's no longer kind of like relinquishing his soul the way that he used to. He doesn't think about work outside of work anymore. He doesn't talk about work with his friends. He doesn't, you know, kind of 
Hawk is like his company's like internal leaderboard. He doesn't need to be on top anymore. He just doesn't like kind of think of himself first and foremost as a recruiter the way that he used to. And that change in his mindset, he said, was permanent. And you can tell that it's permanent because he said that as soon as the economic recovery comes and things are safe for him again, he's going to scale his hours back down to 30 hours a week. And so, yeah, I think in that way, hustle culture is done. But right now, it's probably a little too risky to be a quiet quitter, I think, especially in the tech industry. So I don't know, maybe you need to like look like you're working hard again. But I don't think that changes kind of the rethink that a lot of Americans have had during the pandemic. Yeah. So it goes from quiet quitting to performative working. That's that's the trend. Well, I'm going to say that if you're in a job with a lot of meetings, you see a lot of performative working. And that was true before, during, Oh, I think that's core to the American working experience. I mean, I think a lot of this working (laughs) culture has really been about telling the person next to you that you're working really hard and certainly the person above you. Well, it was really interesting to see during the pandemic when there was not as much performative working because, you know, you couldn't walk over to your boss's desk and just be super performative. Mm -hmm. How people who weren't performative workers seem to do like really well during the pandemic when we were all working from home. You know, they seem to really shine because suddenly their work, everything was just, their work was more judged on the merits of what it was rather than whether or not they'd put in the FaceTime, which I thought right. was fascinating. Totally. And, and I think also fascinating was like the initial realization by bosses that when things did go remote, they were like, well, efficiency isn't really down all that much. It's not like we're getting less out of people. And it feels like a slightly separate conversation just because people were so depressed and working because they couldn't stop. I mean, I think that seems mm-hmm. like a little bit different. It might have helped fuel this desire to quiet quit. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's possible, or unless it was part of the larger trend. But I think, you know, the question was, were they right that efficiency did or didn't go down? Because when you saw, you know, earlier this year, as the economy began to like slightly shit the bed, there was, <laughs> I'm, I'm really trying to get quiet shitting working. No, I, I, I think it's there. It's, it's just so unsavory. I'm sorry. It's so, so, so fundamentally icky, but continue. Yeah. You I'll, keep, I'll take, you it, keep I'll take pushing it back to the writer's room. Yeah. I'll keep talking quiet shitting. Um, uh, uh, th- that there was suddenly like this massive realization on the part of bosses that are like, actually, we've been coasting. There's been a lot of people that really aren't pulling their weight around here. And, you know, maybe it was true or maybe it was just like the macro effects starting to, to hit their business and them trying to reclaim a little bit more control over their workers' lives and, and, and have a little bit that, that that was lost when things went remote. And maybe people did start kind of not being as performative uh, in a way that bosses really liked. I don't know. I guess we'll find out later. Hashtag quiet um, shitting. But anyway. <laughs> I, yes. Yes. I think let's let's I'm going to say you know, this. You can do it, to it but on sh- let's is probably not the. I think you, if you would like, you may. I would say, let's revisit this topic. <laughs> Six months or so, Aki, we're going to have you back. We're going to talk about how the quiet shitting <laughs> epidemic has finally crested um, as the economy has returned to normal and, and we've entered a new stage. What do you think the next one's going to be called? Let's say quiet shitting out of it. Um, uh, what do you expect? Can you give us a new term? We had Taylor Lorenz on a couple months ago and Eric was trying to get like, what's the next term you're going to drop on, oh, funny. on our discourse? What do you sort of see? I don't as, like, know. The next, like, I mean, my editors ask this all the time because, you know, they want me to write more and yeah. <laughs> but you're like, looking <laughs> quiet quitting, guys. So. Yeah, I was about to say, read the article. <laughs> Coasting culture, bitches. <laughs> I don't know. When I figure it out, I'll write about it and then you can have me back on again. Awesome. 
Awesome. I like it. I like that answer. All right. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Aki. Thanks for joining. This is great. Yeah. Thanks. This was awesome. Bye. Goodbye. Silicon Valley. Goodbye. 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 Goodbye.